If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today is a real treat, not because Ashley Miller is here. Every time here. Ashley Miller is here. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you why in just a second. But first, welcome back, Ashley. Ashley, you know, as the writer-producer of such shows as Lore, Black Sails, Terminated, Sarah Connor Chronicles, Fringe, of course, the screenwriter of Thor and X-Men First Class. And uh, I'm really I'm really glad you're here because, uh, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people on the show. We've had Star Trek captains. We've had... Uh, people from all over the television and film, but this is a real treat because uh, it is a legend of the golden age of TV. He's worked on more incredible shows. I, I, it's just stunning. So we're we're gonna have, and you know what's more amazing is he embers them. I, I can't tell you how many times we've interviewed people where they're just repeating their own press releases or the stories that they've told over and over, and, and which bear no resemblance to reality. And uh, the incredible thing about our next guest is, I, I just, I, and I, don't, I really don't know how he does it, because I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but uh, he has a remarkable uh, memory for this incredible career. And of course, I'm talking about Ralph Sineski. Uh, uh, Ralph is, has been a director in television going back to the early 60s. Before that, he directed theater. Um, he worked uh, on production coordinator on Playhouse 90, um, directed for such shows as Dr. Kildare, Route 66, The Nurses, a Quinn Martin production, The Fugitive, uh, the FBI, The Partridge Family. Uh, he, he kicked off um, Dynasty back when it was called Oil. Um, he directed more episodes of, of The Waltons, I think, than virtually anyone else, and uh, worked with Tom Mankiewicz on Heart to Heart. Uh, he was uh, back there in the wild, wild west with the... Uh, well, we'll talk about that because, of course, uh, the great late Gene Kuhn um, was a showrunner and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Star Trek. But uh, perhaps even more exciting, The Twilight Zone. So, um, and there's even more, which we'll get to. I mean, I, 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 this show will not end without me bringing up the, the paper chase at least once. Absolutely. So, uh, as I know, Darren and I are both huge fans of both the James Bridges movie as well as the various iterations of The Paper Chase, which went from 
CBS to Showtime to PBS back to Showtime. So we'll talk about all that. Anyway, Ralph, welcome uh, to Glorious Transfer. Good to have you. Well, you've covered my career. <laughs> I can go now. See, I told you it would be easy. Um, look, Thank you. Good night. I, I, <laughs> I do want to start at the beginning because obviously uh, making a transition in the television at the, at the time, uh, you knew at a very early age you wanted to direct, but a lot of people know they want to direct and don't, you know, aren't fortunate enough to uh, make the transition. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first um, broke into Hollywood and then uh, got your first shot at directing an episode of television? Well, that took about 13 years. Mm. So that uh, I graduated from the Pasadena Playhouse in 1948. And then for the next 13 years, uh, mostly direct, not mostly, uh, directed theater, but it was community theater in Iowa, uh, stock in Chicago, Florida. And then I came out to Hollywood and came back to Hollywood in 1954 and to storm the walls of the studios right. <laughs> and uh, it, it took a while and there again I was advised and I took their advice I got myself involved in what was the off Vine Street Theater mm. there was there were many but the best one out there was the players ring and uh, the owners of that the, the producers there were a couple of my classmates from the playhouse so I uh, I got started with them, lit a couple of productions, directed a production, and then from there branched out to the Pasadena Playhouse, Morgan Theater, uh, the uh, theater on, on, on Melrose, the Horseshoe, uh, until, and was doing that all along at the same time that I decided that I needed some money because I was not going to get launched as quickly as I had hoped. And so I went to work at CBS, started as a secretary. And then from that, moved over into, finally got on into the television branch and was on the staff of Playhouse 90 for a year as a secretary, starting, I started the summer of the, as they were doing the reruns for the first season. And then I was a secretary for the second season and then was elevated and became a production supervisor for the next three seasons. Which which years were those? 50, somewhere around 56. I think it was 56, 56 or 57. That's funny because my dad um, moved to Hollywood in 1959 and worked at Television City in the Mimeo department. And uh, he had a stack of scripts from Playhouse 90 and Twilight Zone and all those great shows that he had years later when I was growing up. And this was like sort of this, uh, this strange uh, pre-life that my dad had that we knew nothing about. And it's just interesting to, you know, as when I moved out here in 85, um, I saw all these places that he had talked about, but had it had no... Uh, uh, connection in my brain and it's just it's just fun because uh, later I worked with uh, Ethel Winant who was the uh, who's the head of casting at CBS yeah. 
and uh, and uh, you know I, I got to talk with her and I worked on a project at Television City uh, with her and it was just this you know this strange connection uh, to something that you know my dad had in a, in another life so it's uh, it's very interesting to hear that you were there at those at that same time. No, I knew Bessa well. She was uh, she was great. I I loved her and she was extremely sweet and and uh, and uh, uh, encouraging to me. Uh, and it was wonderful. She was all of that, but in order to get where she got, uh, she hard as nails. She, you bet. <laughs> she didn't take she didn't take shit from nobody. <laughs> it, it's funny. People can't even understand now where you can publish a rewrite at the touch of a button. Uh, you know, you generate the PDFs. You can do your rainbow pages. You know, instantly. What it took even to get a script out back in the day oh, and, to distribute it, yeah. and to distribute it. And if you wanted to, um, you know, if you needed to rewrite something because of production exigencies and distribute it the same day where you're doing rewrites to just get that mimeoed and physically in the hands of everyone on the floor was, uh, uh, you know, like invading Normandy. Uh, what was, I mean, it's, it's just another, indication of how much this industry has changed so dramatically um what was it like because you were involved in distributing those scripts on weren't you the, a lot of the rewrites back on on playhouse 90. I, I, I was i was the one on playhouse 90 during the year that i was a secretary uh they would mimeo the first script mm -hmm. and they would start rehearsing and at the end of each day of rehearsal there were script changes those came to my desk i was the one who typed them ran them off on the Mimeo machine, the one that were the purple ink that faded. Yeah, different. the ditto, yeah, ditto machines. Yeah, ditto machine. There were pages every day, every day from starting on Monday for the next, oh, through the first two weeks, every day. How long was the, uh, was the uh, production time for one of those uh, episodes because they, they were they were performed live but there was a lot of well originally operation eventually they were taped ah okay yeah because <laughs> I, I think I worked on the first one that was pre-taped oh. but we started on a Monday right and they in the rehearsal hall and stayed in the rehearsal hall for two weeks and on the third Monday they moved on to the sound stage right and that first day they were doing the general camera blocking and laying out, just sketch, sketching it in. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, they just, they were going through the, you know, the camera blocking with rehearsal, work, working it all out. Thursday, they would do it in uh, late, late afternoon, they would have the final dress rehearsal. And then at five, I think it was 5.30, we went on the air live. So that's a, for especially relative to what we get in television today, that is a ton of rehearsal, man. I mean, we're lucky now if you walk onto set and like, you know, you throw lines at each other while you're blocking or you get a table read. But still for you coming from legit theater, directing actors in a context where rehearsal is so crucial to kind of finding the performance and finding the moment, what was it like for you to make that transition from directing stage where you could have that very organic relationship with the actor to directing television, even with those rehearsal opportunities? 
Well, now there's a, there's a difference between directing live television and directing film television. Mm -hmm. I think live television, it, they're having to work out the moves, the cameras, the camera, the camera was integrated, you know, and in those days, they did not have zoom lenses on the cameras. There was a turret with four right. different lenses and depending on uh, which camera and which lens they would need. And there was, there, there was only three of the cameras had just, well, in fact, three of the cameras just had one man, the cameraman, rolling it around, doing all of the work. There was no assistant doing the stuff on the side. Right. And the, the fourth camera was on a crane. And I, I think, as I remember, I think that camera did have a, uh, did, did, did have an assistant cameraman. But all of that had to be worked out. And, and the fact that it was live and that they had to move from set to set it all had to be laid out. All of these, the, the four cameras, all had cables right. connecting them electronically. They had to be careful which camera moved because the camera could not run over somebody else's cable. Sure. So no multiple takes. It was lots of attack rehearsals. So I mean, it 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 took the rehearsal, but by the time they got to the sound stage, by the time they got to the sound stage, they had the two weeks in the rehearsal hall to work out the, for the actor mm -hmm. and to go down and adapt all of that. And most of the time on the soundstage was getting the cameras worked, the camera, the lighting, and just the timing. You were there at a time they were doing television that continues to be legendary today, things like Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, I, I, I just I was, absolutely- I was on that. Well, I mean, it must be incredible when you look back. And you, did you ever think at the time you were doing that, that this is, you know, uh, television that would stand the test of time, particularly live television, you think would have been totally disposable in a way. And yet, uh, you know, when we look back at the golden age of TV, I mean, it's sort of the poster child for that. Playhouse 90. Well, it was a great training ground for me. You know, I, I knew theater. But I learned camera watching Frank Schaffner, George Roy Hill, Ralph Nelson, just the, the whole slew of them. And how did that pave the way for you to direct your first episode of TV? Uh, how'd you get that first break? That's a whole story, too. <laughs> I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> a good one. Well, it, it was once, once I went to work at in, in television, I was doing that and I've worked my way up from secretary so that I was on the staff of Playhouse 90. But mm -hmm. at the same time, during those, from 50, 50 was I, I directed my first, I came out in 54 late, directed my first theater show in 19, early 1955. And I think by the time I uh, finally got to direct my first television film, I think I directed 15th, 15th place in, in theaters. So I was working by day and then directing theater by night. And uh, in 1959, there were a bunch of actors, professional actors on the West Coast who wanted to bring a, the Equity Library Theater that was in New York 
They wanted to bring that out to Hollywood. Mm. And they succeeded. And I had friends, uh, again, an actor that I had worked with in, who, who I directed in one of the plays at Gilmer Brown's Playbox, Wendell Holmes, a lady who became one of my closest, closest friends, Adrienne Martin, who went all the way back. Her, her, first, her first film, I think she was in uh, the, the, the show with the three Barrymores. Oh yeah, you know the name is gone. Right, and then and her and her first and she she had a major role in a Kaufman and Hart play on Broadway. She was in the women, right, of the women. Anyway, they Wendell was on the board uh, to to uh, accept the plays, and they were plays submitted by directors. Now. You had to be a member of equity to be in this. Fortunately, I had spent a summer in summer stock as an assistant director. So I had an equity card. I was on, I was on withdrawal, but I had the card. So I reinstated. Wendell and Adrian urged me to present a, present a project that, to, to them for acceptance. And so I did. And I wanted to find something I'd already done. Death of a Salesman. I had done The Iceman Cometh. I had done, you know, and I still wasn't launched. So I thought, well, I've got to find something that's really going to launch me. Right. So I picked an old war horse by Maureen Watkins, Chicago, uh -huh. and submitted it, and the board accepted it. And then two days later, they called. Uh, they said they couldn't get the rights. And it turned out, Maureen Watkins had written the play as a serious drama. And when it became the big success on Broadway, it was a comedy. And she so resented that, oh, that she withdrew and never allowed, as long as she was alive, never allowed another production. Wow. So and, until she died and Bob Fosse took it. Right. And, that, and that was... That was the script that became the great musical Chicago. Right. So Adrian said, okay, pick another play. And uh, during periods like that, you know, you have your upspin, but you also have your downs. And I just said, why? <laughs> it just, it was not a time that I thought that, that I really, I, thought, I just thought, oh, forget it. Well, Adrienne was relentless. She was absolutely relentless. And she said, I think you should do a production of Paul Osborne's Mornings at Seven. Mm. I said, oh, that wishy-washy thing. I don't, <laughs> don't want to do that. Well, she kept at me. I said, okay, I'll submit it. Well, Wendell was on the board, and he knew that I was not all that enthused Right. So, he, uh, they, they told me that they were not. They did not pick mornings at seven. They picked Johnny Ehrman's play that he had submitted, uh, the Ladies of the Corridor. Hmm. And so then I had time to think. Well, maybe I should have, but you know that doesn't get you anything. Right. So you you move on. Well, a couple of days later, they called again. They couldn't get the rights to Ladies of the Corridor. 
would I do mornings at seven? I said, <laughs> okay. Well, I did it. And James Powers in the Hollywood Reporter, well, we, we did it. We, did it on a $50 budget on one of those small stages. It was in a park in Beverly Hills and the stage wasn't 20 feet wide. And this was two houses on, on the exterior on the side and the connecting ground, cast of nine. We did it. James Powers wrote the most glorious review I've ever had. And all that was doing this at the time I was on Playhouse 90. And one of my jobs on Playhouse 90, if once the budget was in, then if the company needed something extra that was going to mean more money, the request would come to my desk. Uh, I would make out a slip and take it into Norman Felton, who was one of the execs, right. or for him his approval. And the day after, the second day after, whenever the reviews for Morning Seven came out. I, when I went in with that, and he was reading the variety, he was reading the reporter. And he said, is this you? <laughs> I said, yeah. Well, he, he said, we talked. He, we, he told me that he, too, had started in community theater, but he questioned me. I did two more plays. Uh, did morning, I did Mornings at 7 in April. In June, I got a call from the Pasadena Playhouse to step in, they had a show in production and they were replacing the director. It's a production of Somerset Mom's The Circle with Estelle Winwood. Hmm. And would I stick, come in? And I said, oh my, I don't know how to do a high comedy. <laughs> I gave them the, the name of a friend of mine who was a you know, blind director working in, in, in theater. And so they called him and then they called me back and said, well, they can't get him. Well, we worked it out. I made some arrangements. I wanted to hear the cast read. Anyway, I did that and went in and had them out. They had already used up their three weeks, part of their three weeks rehearsal. So did that and again got Dynamite Review. And again, Norman saw it. <laughs> I did another play in September. Well, to make a short story, uh, a long story short, uh, the following year, 1961, he was leaving CBS to go to Metro to form his own production company, Arena Productions, and their first production was going to be Dr. Kildare mm -hmm. with him as the assistant to the producer. And then there's another whole story that I'm not going to go into. <laughs> but in, uh, in October, I got to direct one. That's great. Well, let me ask you, because <laughs> you've right. done... You know, obviously, based on your uh, th theater career, a lot of drama, a lot of character-oriented um, story. So when you get something like, say, Desilu's Mission Impossible, which is the opposite of that, it's the antithesis of character-based, it's all action, it's all plot, you know, how much does that throw you a curve, or is it all the same thing to you? I mean, how do you, you know, basically tackle a show like that, which is the opposite of character drama and, 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 and so much that you had built your career on. Well, to begin with, I mean, I, I also learned the technical side. Well, I only did one Mission Impossible. The train, right.
morning, Mr. Briggs. The man you're looking at is Ferenc Laria, the prime minister of Svardia who has long fought to establish democracy and freedom for his people. Laria is now gravely ill and hasn't long to live. He has groomed Deputy Premier Pavel to succeed him and carry on his policies. We know, however, that once in power, Pavel would set up a dictatorship and then purge the country of all opposition. But Laria will not hear anything against Pavel. The mission, if you decide to accept, is to keep Pavel from becoming prime minister. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in ten seconds. Good luck, Dan. Great. And that one, uh, it, it wasn't great drama, but there was drama there. I mean, I, see, I, I've refused to think of it as just concentrating on the action. And uh, incidentally, the train was the one at the end of the year when they were nominated. The train was the one mm-hmm. that submitted, and uh, they won the best series of the year. Yeah, uh, they won the Emmy for that. I yeah. had a great cast. You know, I had Reese Williams, William Wyndham. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it was, uh, no, we, we had great drama running on that. And it's super complex. Because you you had a you know two what two location days at least one. I mean you had a you I, one, one location one location <laughs> sixty nine setups oh my god oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that's for our, our our listeners who don't know how insane that is it, it, it sixty nine setups in a day is it's it's, it's unbelievable it's a bet gone wrong. <laughs> Um, and this is and this is back in the day where you know camera equipment was much more cumbersome, and um, you, you were shooting with one camera and oh, I, uh, I had two you, cameras. Oh, you two, okay, I had two cameras, two cameras. Now, why, why did you only end up doing one Mission Impossible? Obviously, they were very happy with you. You won the Emmy. Um, you had a, a, I assume, a, a good experience uh, based on the way it turned out. Um, was there a reason that you didn't go back or did you not want to go back or, or um, Bruce Geller wasn't a fan or what, what happened uh, there? Well, the, the next season, the beginning of the season, the producer was Joe Ganfman, who again was a friend from CBS, CBS days. No, they, they, they wanted me to come back and do six more. Oh. Said no, it was a killer. Yeah. Right. I had 69 setups. Yeah. It was a killer. I just, yeah. I just didn't want to do it. They couldn't pay you enough. Now, you also did probably the most distinguished of the one-hour Twilight Zones. The one-hour Twilight Zones are not considered in the generally uh, as beloved as the classic, you know, half hours. But you did Printer's Devil with uh, Burgess Meredith, which is a terrific episode, and he's great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you remember about shooting the Twilight Zone? Well. It was being produced by Herbert Hirschman, who had been the original line producer on Dr. Kildare. And I had also known Herb before when he was the assistant to Herb Brodkin, when Herb Brodkin came in a couple of years and did a third of the shows. And uh, Herb Hirschman got to direct some of those. And anyway, I he, he produced Johnny Temple, my first Dr. Kildare. Mm-hmm. And then... I had, after I'd done four shows, and it took me 
over a year to, to get four, my first four filmed directing shows in. And uh, my agent called me and they said that, that Herb Hirschman had put a hold on me to do a, a, to do a one hour Twilight Zone. And did you, do you know what a hold was? Yeah, I mean, basically when they don't book you, but they're interested, they check your dates and your availability. It, it, and the dates and for you not to accept anything else. And right. well, then a couple of days later, they called back to tell me that uh, the script was by Rod Serling and Rod wouldn't, uh, wouldn't accept me. I mean, I he wouldn't approve you to do his episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a few weeks later, there was another offer. And this was not for Rod's script but it was for uh, a script by Charlie Beaumont. And it was mm -hmm. and it was just a great, great, great script. Yeah. And not not only Burgess, but Robert Sterling and Pat Crowley. And it, 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 it was, it was, you know, it was great material. And, I, and I've said this, that in those, or those first half a dozen years, the early sixties, the scripts really were, were reflecting the quality and the caliber of the scripts that had previous decade been what live television was doing right. during the golden age. Right. And uh, you know, we, we did produce Devil in six days. Right. Wow. Which is incredible. I mean, six days for one hour show. And back then the commercial load was a lot less. So you were probably, what, 52 minutes, 47 minutes? About 52 minutes. 51 minutes. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so that's... That's rough. I mean, that's a, a, a unbelievable. And again, another show that stands the test of time. I mean, so much of TV of that era, you can't find, but um, you could probably, if you wanted to watch uh, this episode, virtually any streaming platform, it's on Blu-ray, it's easily gettable, and, uh, you know, it totally endures. I, I just found out last night, uh, Amazon Prime, which has had some of these on, and then lately, when I would see it, uh, some of the shows that I uh, had done were on it, but they weren't l letting you see it. Right, you'd had to pay you, extra for it. I, I don't know what has happened within the last few days. Last night, I found out that, and I'll tell you which shows are on, they're there, they do have commercials in them, mm. but... Twilight Zone, Naked City, Route mm -hmm. 66, Dynasty, uh, I Spy, The Partridge Family. <laughs> They're all, all of them are, are mm -hmm. out. So when are they changing the name of it to the Ralph Sinensky uh, streaming channel? <laughs> no, Go ahead, Darren. No, no. I'd, I'd rather they say Ralph Sinensky on the checks. <laughs> <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yes, I, absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you briefly about I Spy since you bring it up. You know, people forget, obviously, in in the wake of what happened with Bill Cosby, what a groundbreaking show I Spy was. Shot internationally, uh, shot on location, um, obviously, you know, uh, I, in terms of uh, race, it was groundbreaking in terms of Bill Cosby's role. And uh, it also, uh, Bill Culp was uh, really Bob, such a Bob, magnificent... Bob, Bob, Bob Culp. Yeah, what did I say? Did I said Bill. Bill. I meant Bob Culp. It's such a Robert Culp was such a, a, a amazing creative talent as well, and which he, he sort of his acting often overshadowed that. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what you remember about working on I Spy and why that show was so unique? Well, it was unique because it traveled all over the world. The one I got, I got to go to Lake Arrowhead. (laughs) (laughs) And it was one of the, that that was early. And I, I mean, I, I have worked with people and I cannot commend enough the care that the photographers, that the set, the designers, the editors, they, they just, you know, for somebody new, uh, they, they were great. Right. That was the first really unhappy experience I had. And it was mm-hmm. Mr. Colt. Oh, really? Okay. And I will go no further. And then later I did get did get to work with Bill Cosby. And I feel, you know, as bad as you do, probably worse, because I just thought he was great. Right. In front of and behind the camera. He, Sometimes he was, it's, try to, it's hard to reconcile these things. The, oh, the person yeah. you think they are with the person they turn out to be. We've all, I think, seen that unfortunately in this wonderful, business. Wonderful talent, but just so easy about what he did. And in front of the camera, he, he was, he just was great. Well, I want to ask you, oh, sorry. I, I, I want to, I want to uh, bop back a little bit to uh, uh, a show that you did nine episodes of that is one of my favorites when I was watching, when I was growing up, The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Oh, God, so good. You, you and me both. Um, it's, it, it was just such a sweet show and I loved watching it as a kid and as an adult. Yes, and, and they, they played just as well today as they did. When absolutely, we- absolutely. How was it working with, with uh, Brandon, the, the, the kid? Because um, it, it's hard to tell how he was actually in his performance and, uh, and uh, well, you, reality. Well, once I started my website, and you know, I started it 11 years ago, uh, and Brandon lives in, I think, Santa Barbara. And he, he contacted me. He contacted me. And uh, he was wonderful. I, the way that show was done was wonderful. Uh, I started on that, I think, in late 1968. And it wasn't, wasn't, didn't go on the air until the fall of 69. Mm. But they they were doing the show, and uh, by the time I got there, they had done know, maybe five or six. They would only do seven or eight at a crack. Yeah. Uh, I know that Bill Bixby was the most responsible because he had never been in front of a camera before. Brandon. Brandon hadn't, right. Had never been in front of a camera. Right. Uh, he was just great. He was great. And I, I have found out since he did not have a happy home life of his own. Right. And to him, uh, doing that, it was like the life that he was living the life he would like to be living. Oh, that's he, sweet. He was, he was incredible. I mean, he, he was so absolutely natural. Yes. And it, it was just, it's astounding to watch, actually. There, there, there's a scene, and a, a, a breakfast scene, 
it, it, it was it was the one where we were doing a a ripoff of the odd couple mm -hmm. I, I think it was called the mod couple or something like that but there was a scene and shot mostly in masters between bill and brandon mm -hmm. his comedy timing i i marvel at it i absolutely marvel at it i mean the timing and just the reality yeah no he, he was great he was just great and then I, I used him again later in a pilot uh, when he was 13 years old. Wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I want to ask you, because you did a couple of episodes of the Wild Wild West. Yes. And, uh, I want to ask you about that. And I also want to ask you specifically about the wonderful Gene Kuhn, because of course, for Ashley and I, who are both, you know, uh, showrunners on TV, we, we just live in awe of Gene Kuhn and uh, you and me both <laughs> uh, I, I uh, and, and it's so sad that obviously he passed away so so young in the early 70s that he's not around to tell his story that he isn't celebrated the way he deserves to be and, and so I like him too by the way yeah I know, I know obviously <laughs> you know uh, yeah so, <laughs> um, but uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about the experience of working on Wild Wild West. Of course, Robert Conrad passed away recently, so we, we should probably talk about him. But specifically, Gene, okay. um, you know, that, which would be, would be great, because there's so few people that, um, you know, that worked with him. Robert Wagner talks about him occasionally. Um, uh, David Gerald a little bit. Um, uh, we're going to be talking to Andre Richardson, who was his assistant. Um, but uh, love to love to hear your thoughts about it. And Wild Wild West, which is such a beloved uh, show I know Darren you work with uh, James Cauley out in New York uh, uh, and he's a huge Wild Wild West fan on that absolutely the, the man who recreated the Star Trek sets out in Ticonderoga New York and now does the tours there um, so uh, what can you tell us about that experience of Wild Wild West what an interesting show that unfortunately that abysmal movie sort of killed the goodwill that it had after all these years well Gene Gene told me when I did the, the Wild Wild West, and the first one I did, he produced. And he told me at the time that what he did, he, writers would come in with ideas. If they bought them, they would go home and write the script. They would bring it in, and then that would, he would rewrite it. Right. He rewrite it. It was, it was difficult. That was such an off beat show that writers didn't get it right and so he would rewrite it and he would use their version as a first draft right just did that and you know he was wonderful and then i have to tell you i i i know this 98 percent. i mean i i nothing was said about it ever but gene coon when i went back to do the second one he was gone and Mike Garrison had taken over finally. He had created the series. They wouldn't let him do it. And then finally he did take over. And I did the one uh, with Ida Lupino. We were doing Frankenstein. And uh, Mike, Mike wanted me to, to stay on and you know, do some more. And at that time, I, that was, I had already signed a contract the following season to go do 13 FBI's. And I, I couldn't. Right. And then there's, I always figure that there's somebody upstairs figuring these things out 
because I didn't last through 13 of the FBI's. I lasted through eight, and there were circumstances, and so I bowed out, and because I bowed out, I was then available because Gene Kuhn had moved to Star Trek, and he was the one who brought me over there. Right, and you were originally supposed to do his script, The Devil in the Dark, which he famously wrote in 24 hours. I mean, he was a remarkably fast writer, but he wasn't just fast. He was a great writer. And But it, you ended up not doing Devil in the Dark. You did This Side of Paradise instead. And uh, there's, there again, the story there is just what I've put together. Uh, I, Devil in the Dark was, was a difficult show. And I... They, they figured that for somebody coming in to do a first episode, uh, it, it, would, it, it might be too much. That's too mm-hmm. bad because uh, Joe Pevney did a good job on it, and uh, Joe's a good director, but Joe and I work differently, and if I'd done it, it would have been a different show. Interesting. And, and then the other thing is that uh, The Sight of Paradise, which I describe in my on my on my website to me it wasn't it really wasn't that different from i mean it wasn't science fiction it, it was another story except the guys had funny suits and one of one of them had a fun, had funny ears right you're no longer with us are you i felt something was wrong it was necessary Come back to the planet with me. You can belong again. Come back with me, please. I can't. (gasps) I love you. I said that six years ago and... Seem to stop repeating myself. On earth, you couldn't give anything of yourself. You couldn't even put your arms around me. We couldn't have anything together there. We couldn't have anything together anyplace else. Well, we're happy here. I, I can't lose you now, Mr. Spock. I can't. I have a responsibility. This ship. That man on the bridge. I am what I am, Layla. And if there are self-made purgatories, then we all have to live in them. Well, mm-hmm. when you say that Devil in the Dark would have been a different show, how do you mean? What was the thing you were you were feeling from that script that you wanted to bring out of the episode that you felt wasn't present um, in the episode as it was finished. I would spend more time on the monster. Mm. And it was such an uh, uh, inventive monster, the famous story of how uh, Giannis brought it in and uh, showed it to Gene Kuhn. And Gene says, I know what to do with it. I mean, it started with the monster and he comes up with this whole episode based on seeing this walking carpet roll into his office. It's, 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 it's remarkable. But I, I have to feel that Leonard 
had a gift in getting you for this side of paradise. Because when Dorothy famously said, I'm writing a love story for you. And he says, no, you can't do a love story with Spock. That's ridiculous. Spock doesn't have emotions. And she says, just you wait. And obviously Leonard is somebody who took the work very seriously. And I'm not sure another director would have been able to get the performance they did right. it's out of out of Leonard, which is him into the freeness and, and that he had. Jill, and Jill. And Jill, who, oh my God. Absolutely. Jill Island, who is luminous oh. beyond belief. I, I mean, the electricity she generates in that episode. I mean, she's so stunning. And what a wonderful, wonderful performance that at the end spoiler alert I'm not, gonna uh, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying <laughs> <laughs> but i want to hear you say it ralph <laughs> um if i say it that <laughs> okay okay well i also would say the location work in that episode was extremely good and uh you know Star Trek website you know the problem I, I did but uh for those of you who haven't read it yet and i say yet because they should all go and look at ralph's cinema trek uh where he chronicles ralph's, his, yeah, ralph's his, his whole career in uh a lot of his career in uh, amazing detail um I, I highly recommend it you should you should check it out but i wonder if you can sort of tell us exactly what happened uh, the, the because it's a, it's a funny story. Well, especially since it turns out that she did not have measles. Um, uh, why you lost location and, and where you ended up that made it better. And I, I don't see how anyone could argue that. And of course, we should talk about Jerry Finnerman as well, who is also another genius. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the when we moved, uh, we were two days. We had two days scheduled at the Disney Ranch. Right. And uh, because we lost her, for the we, she ne she never got out of the ranch ever. Hmm. And uh, the second day we ended up with just a half a day out there. And then I went back to the studio, but uh, and then we couldn't get the ranch again. It was booked. Right. And so they, by that time, I had. Let me think. Now that was the location oh, yeah, that I, had I, the barn and the I building. Had, I had right? I had worked this at uh, the the place where we shot that. I had I had done a uh, an episode of Breaking Point up there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we went there and it was just this. The Disney Ranch was flat. Right. That was all hills, and you saw. I mean, it just was better scenically. Right. Mm -hmm. Scenically including, I don't know if I could have done the thing where he, he hangs from a branch of the tree. It's, it's, I, it's I, perfect. I, it's I, the perfect I, I could have done, would have done that at the, at the ranch because I, I, I didn't plan that. Right. I, I was out in the middle of the field directing the scene and was working and I saw the tree and I said, oh, I'm staring. I, I don't want to shoot here. Can I move over there? He said, yeah. So we moved over and shot that scene and Leonard, just on his own. I mean, had had never done anything like that, and he right. did the scene. And Bill was wonderful in playing off of it. And it, right. it's, it's, I think, it's an iconic scene. It is absolutely iconic scene, and I think it's such an important lesson for anybody who is an aspiring director, because of course you are meticulous when you go in in terms of your planning, in terms of your shot list, but you're also open to inspiration. So. 
even though you go in knowing what you're going to shoot, you see that tree and you say, okay, we're going to change this. We're going to, we're going to do it completely different. And of course your DP is, is, you know, we, we, uh, totally on board with that. And that, that makes it easy because sometimes you have DP that's very much, you know, mired in their way of doing things. So it was just such a great marriage between you and Jerry Finnerman. And uh, I mean, that's what makes that such, you know, such a, a remarkable episode um, between Can what we- you, I was going to say, can we talk a little bit about you working with Bill Shatner? Because that specific episode has so many iconic Shatner, Kirk, um, almost explosions of, of, uh, of energy. How were you able to sort of rein it in so that it didn't become comedic? Because they're very good and they're very, uh, you can see the energy in them, but they're, they're still a bit restrained. How did, how did you do it? <laughs> it just happened because that didn't always happen. On Return to Tomorrow, it didn't happen. Right. The, right. The restraint. Right. You say that, Ralph, uh, but <laughs> Return to Tomorrow, which I know you don't like, has perhaps one of the most remarkable Shatner scenes I know, they, uh, in yeah. Risk is Our Business. Right. I used to say if a man could fly, he'd have wings. But he did fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish that the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon, or that we hadn't gone on to Mars and then to the nearest star? That's like saying you wish that you still operated with scalpels and sewed your patients up with catgut like your great, 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 great grandfather used to. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. You may descend without prejudice. Do I hear a negative vote? Yeah, I, I, I'm talking I, about the one where he he's playing with that big, you know, the big ping pong ball, right? And where he becomes the other man, and right, that that's that's pretty hard to take. <laughs> I, I, I understand a little borderline. Yes, <laughs> that there's a lot you don't like over the border. There's a lot you don't like about that, but you know, uh, one of the great Star Trek moments is Shatner's speech in that episode where oh, he's sitting in the. <laughs> he has a speech like that in Metamorphosis too. That's right. And during the dailies, Gene Kuhn and Gene, incidentally, I didn't get to do Devil in the Dark, but I did get to do Metamorphosis. Which mm-hmm. He also wrote. Right? That's a beautiful script and mm-hmm. a beautiful episode. And uh, the the scene where uh, Kirk is talking to the cloud to, to the companion. 
right. in, in dailies after that shot, Gene Kuhn said, that's why we pay him the big money. Companion, you love the man. I do not understand. Is he important to you? More important than anything. Is he... As though he were a part of you. He is part of me. The man must continue. He will not continue. He will cease to exist. By your feeling for him, you are condemning him to an existence he will find unbearable. He will cease to exist. Nice. <laughs> now, was Eleanor Donahue one of your choices? Or Eleanor Donahue, who played Nancy Hedford in that episode in oh, Metamorphosis? She submitted, and I just said yes, but I, I, I hadn't picked her. And uh, you had, you know, uh, the thing about Metamorphosis is you were, their swing set was very small. So you That's sort of pioneered the use of the nine millimeter lens on Star Trek. That was Jerry introducing me to it. But I love the way that you use it on Metamorphosis, but then you use it in a very clever way when you come back and do, um, you know, is there in truth no beauty uh, to, to suggest the idea of insanity. Um, and it, it works so well. And I know you like that episode. I'm not as huge a fan, but I, I love the POV that you do with the nine millimeter lens in that episode. It was very, you know, and, and, um, and I imagine it must be freeing because you're looking at an episode a very different way we are, because you're saying, you know, does it work? You know, how the performances, um, you know, was I able to, to do something new and exciting and fresh with this show? Um, you, you know, so it's, it's interesting to hear the episodes you feel work versus the episodes that you don't like and how that would compare to us as a viewer. I mean, what are the criteria by which you sort of look at, when you look back at, at that show in particular, um, you know, by which you judge it? And are you surprised that that's a show that people keep asking about, you know, when you've worked on so many amazing uh, shows over your career? Are you talking about Returns to Tomorrow? Well, no, I mean, Star Trek in general, the fact that this continues to be a show that well, you know, people are fascinated by. Uh, you know, I have to say that I'm also affected not only by the show and the material, but by the conditions under which they were made. And only two of the Star Treks were made under good conditions. Mm -hmm. Once Paramount bought it, it really... It was different. Yeah. And what what had been fun became even more difficult than work. What made it that way? Hmm? What made it that way? What about the what about the change for yeah, scheduling? The scheduling. Mm. I went there. Gene Kuhn told told me they had a six day schedule, but he said we're averaging out to, to six and a half, which meant that some shows you know, which were a little more ambitious, uh, might take seven days. Right. Uh, when Paramount bought it, they said six days, period. Right. But not only that, the day, the normal day started at seven in the morning, started to shoot at eight, and you shot till seven at night. Right. Uh, 
Paramount decreed you will stop at 612. That's 48 minutes a day, which for six days is about another half a day. Yeah. Meant that shows like Bread and Circuses, Return to Chicago, were shot in five and a half days. Jesus. Well, the great thing is about those is that you cannot tell. At least us as the viewers couldn't tell. That's the cast. That's Jerry Finnerman. Yeah. And the crew being uh, amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it it has come out since then that other members of the cast have commented on the fact that uh, Paramount, it it also put a, a pressure on the cast. Right. The pressure on them. I mean, just working, there was an atmosphere just because of attitude. Right. The, the head of the head of production for Paramount was not Herb Solo. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he, yes. you mentioned bread and circuses, and I have to say that you know, for anybody who works in TV, it must have been fun to sort of have a little fun at television's expense when you were doing that, because of course it, 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 I would say it pokes gentle fun at the network, but it's more than poking gentle fun at the network in bread and circuses. Uh, the whole idea of these gladiatorial games being uh, 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 broadcast on TV, it sort of was, you know, an early version of network in a way where you say, Oh, well, television will never be like this. And of course, look at the world we live in now. It was really like so much of Star Trek ahead of its time. Captain's Log, Stardate 4040.7. We've run across one of the strangest examples of parallel planet development. What are we seeing? 20th century Rome? Don't move! It's been a long time since I've watched barbarians die in the arena. Fight, you poison air freak! Young men dying, not strangers. You know why you're not afraid to die, Spock. You're more afraid of living. Let's go. For this evening, I was told I am your slave. Command me. Six days to do those fights, too. I mean, it's just crazy. But we, but we didn't have enough time to do the fights, to do them right, and to do them safely. Right. And, and that, 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 that alone takes the fun out of it. Right. And you had a bunch of location, uh, because you were back in Bronson Canyon yes. for um, uh, you know, all those scenes with uh, Ian Wolfe and Septimus. And, I, I, uh, I, I was, I'm not sure, but I think that was all one day. Right. It was just, wow. That makes That's, sense. Yeah. And then you went to work with Gene Kuhn again on It Takes a Thief. Um, on which? You said, uh, on It Takes a Thief, didn't you? You worked with Gene again, no, Gene I Kuhn? I didn't. Oh, I didn't okay. To. I didn't get to because uh, he, he was over there and there was an offer, but I was c- caught up doing Star Trek. Oh, okay. And, and then... So I no I I never saw Gene again after Metamorphosis. Wow. And do you think that was? I mean, there are a lot of different theories about why Gene left. You know, he was burnt out. Was one another was that he was, uh, you know, sick. Another was that uh, Roddenberry didn't want to do more comedy. Um, but it sounds like 
just working for Paramount was I, part I, of what. I, I'm sure that had a big part of it. It, it affected everybody. Mm -hmm. It affected everybody. But you did go to work for Bob Justman on Then Came Bronson a few years yes. later. Yes. Yes. So and, you had, and and Bob also had another project, and I don't. I think it was after Bronson. Uh, he had a, a project that he wanted me to come do the pilot, and I was committed and couldn't. No, they everybody was great. I mean, they all were just. It, it was a great, great unit. You know, it's interesting because in the business you hear so much about the bad apples, the jerks, the Harvey Weinstein's, right? But you know, people's careers are built on their French, and uh, you look at, at at some of these people you work with, and how one opportunity leads to another. A Gene Kuhn meets you on Wild Wild West, and then suggests you for Star Trek, or Bob Justman then suggests you for They They Come Brats, or you know, um, you certainly getting Doctor Kildare after your experience on Playhouse ninety. It really is about these great relationships, isn't it? That that moves you ahead in, in your career, through, particularly through the lean times, because there's always somebody who says, oh, wait, I got something for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so now you get into the 70s, and I'm wondering, <laughs> you, you, I'm sorry, what, what Robert? What, what, I'm sorry, what did you say? I, I, the 70s were different. Yeah, the 70s were different. The scripts became less important, didn't they? The story was less important. I mean, the, the shows weren't as iconic, I mean, you did work on stuff like The Partridge Family, which people still talk about. But, I mean, you look at something like Planet of the Apes, which was just an attempt to cash in. It was the beginning of IP intellectual property fever, where it was like, how do we take this movie franchise and turn it into a TV show? What was, what was that experience like working on Planet of the Apes um, for well, you? It, 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 was, it was fun to be trying to do it, but... I also recognized, I mean, to do an episode of Planet of the Apes in six days. Right. Come on. Yeah. yeah. With all the makeup effects and all the yeah. action and being up at Fox Ranch out up in Chatsworth. Yes. I mean, the, the, those, the, the actors for the, the, the makeup crew, when we went out to Fox Ranch, the makeup crew, I think, started at two o'clock in the morning. Right. It's interesting yeah. because you, you mentioned having started your career working uh, alongside Franklin Schaffner. I, I wonder what he was thinking when he was watching the TV show, knowing how groundbreaking uh, that the movie was in 68, what he, his work was in 68. And then obviously in six days, what can you really do? I mean, you were doing The Fugitive again, basically, mm -hmm. with the Planet Aves. One has been the same as the other. Destroy everything in here. Burn this place to the ground. Quick, quick. What is here would give us great power. 
The knowledge would be safe with us. We're not like humans. Would we really be better off or safer? Remember, once the knowledge in here is set free, it will spread out of control. I will be in control. You are now. You have weapons, troops. Suppose one of your officers learns the secrets in there. He'll have the power to destroy you, to destroy the world. Would you risk that? Burn it. Burn it! Um, and and if one of the, I think, most interesting, you talk about reboots. I mean, one of the most audacious was when David Walper uh, decides to bring back Casablanca. <laughs> and it's just like, how do you do Casablanca <laughs> as a TV show? But you did it. And, you know, I know it gets a bad rap. And, and maybe I'm damning it with faint praise. But it's not nearly as bad as it should have been. It, 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 it's watchable. I, I've said that if they had done the, the shows that we did that were called Casablanca, and if it had not been called Casablanca, and if the characters had had different names, it might have worked. Mm. It could have worked. Interesting. Everybody I, I comes to some guy and, not named. And it was not the first. That was not the first attempt to do a series of Casablanca. Right. It was not the last. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's this thing they, they see the name and they want to bring it back and actually uh, it's very seldom that the one they bring back I mean it, 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 right off the bat it's going to be compared and of course, yeah. you, can't compare, you can't compare to that although, although I love and I think this was your idea Ralph um, to cast Isabella Rossellini which of, who of course is Ingrid Bergman's daughter which would have been Right, but they didn't want it, but David Wolper didn't want to do that, which now I can't imagine because you know it's highly promotable. It's you know, yeah. so I mean, that's that's strange. And then, um, I gotta ask you, you also worked on Night Gallery, you know, and having worked on the Twilight Zone, how did the experience of doing Night Gallery compare with Twilight Zone for you? Well, uh it wasn't the same, and a lot of it was because, again, it was later, it was in color, and it was right. universal. And right. there, there was just a feeling about universal. Even when things were going well, there was just something about universal that, at least for me, was a negative. Right. There was a reason they called it the factory, wasn't there? I mean, it was like widgets at universal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then but you, you did stay on the Waltons for a while. I imagine that I was a good... The Waltons. The, the Waltons was one of the bright spots and oases in the mm -hmm. 70s. Mm -hmm. And that was because Earl, I mean, Earl, but he had said himself, because it was so off, so different, the network didn't, didn't bother him as they bothered so many. Most of the shows, the, the network just was exerting influence and this was so different that I don't think they knew what to do with it. They had no idea what note to give. After he stayed there all nine seasons. Mm -hmm. right. and, and I mentioned how much I, uh, you know, we all love Gene Kuhn. There's another guy I love. I wonder if you can say much about Tom Mankiewicz, who developed uh, Heart to Heart, um, you know, passed away about 10 years ago. Did you work cl very closely with Tom on that? or Never, never met him. Never met him. Okay. Um, and uh, and that I don't think he did much after he created it and sort of helped get it launched. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And and then you're to blame for launching Dynasty, of course. We can't not mention that. Why did you say blame? Nah, I'm, 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 I'm kidding. But you, uh, you know, you did a ton of those shows, and obviously, you know, for people who we remember, you know, it, it was a huge. Uh, it, it came on the heels of Dallas, but ABC, you know, sort of owned that era of television, and Dynasty was a huge part of that success of the network. Um, could maybe just a few thoughts of things you might remember about having, you know, about Dynasty and that whole experience. I think I remember a lot. I think it took me 10 posts to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, I mean, how do you approach doing a soap, a serialized soap, as opposed to maybe a more grounded drama? Well, it, I, it, but I wasn't approaching it as a soap. I was approaching it as a, as, as a movie. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the pilot, the pilot was the pilot was a wonderful script, and I never could figure out. I was hired on Friday to start work on Monday. Now that had been in, in works for a long time. I couldn't imagine why they had not found their director, because I'm sure that they went through the roster, and uh, it wasn't a matter of they're not accepting. I'm sure that they offered it and it was turned down and i just thought it was a wonderful script mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no and and uh obviously it, it got more silly as it went on but it starts you know it started out in a much more grounded place and speaking of grounded i, I you know i mentioned that i alluded at the beginning of the show that one of darren and i's favorite shows the paper chase and of course Absolutely. you got to work with the incomparable john houseman who had immortalized the role of professor kingsfield and the uh, the original film and then came back and, and played that role in his early 80s, I believe. Um, right. And it was just as intimidating, it's just as terrifying as he had been in the movie. What, what do you remember about uh, doing the Paper Chase? Paper Chase was really unique because it was a very cerebral show at a time where television was kind of dopey um, for the most part. Kinda. I know. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was that one of the things that attracted you to Paper Chase? Was that the scripts were so much oh, more erudite? Absolutely. Well, that and uh, I had just come off of a uh, come off of a just a, an un, unhappy, unpleasant experience, and uh, I was turning down work. Because I just said, I don't, I don't want to work. And my agents called and said. Uh, Will you go out and meet with Lynn Roth on the paper chase? Mm. And I said, yeah, I will. But I went out and Lynn wasn't bringing me out to audition me. She was bringing me out to ask me if I would, how I would feel about doing a show about abortion. Mm. The, the choice. Mm. The best script of the ones that I did. And uh, it it was just a great experience. I mean, they done under very difficult conditions. I mean, we were on a strict six-day schedule. Right. We were shooting on a 16-millimeter film. Right. Which meant the cameraman was, and I've forgotten his name, but he was wonderful. And he, he was having to light differently. But he was doing it and meeting it all. Uh, they were not developing the film. They only developed the negative and then uh-huh. transferred the negative to tape. Right. They were right. edited on tape. 
And I mean, if it was all done so unconventionally, right. but the, and the, the cast, casts on series were better in the first year, and especially in the first few months of before you go on the air, than after the show becomes became successful mm. and they became stars. Uh, right. Well, that never happened on Paper Chase. Mm. I mean, always, it was always under the wire. And, you know, a season's work was seven or eight shows, if, if that many. Right. You, mm -hmm. you did the series finale, didn't you? You, mm -hmm. you did this, the series finale, the final episode of the series. Graduation. The graduation. Um, I was there. I was at USC at the time, and you guys were shooting there. And I remember uh, watching you all, you know, set up the set up the the class and everything, and and uh, and I got to say a couple words to uh, Mr. Hausman. I, I walked up to him. He was walking alone down uh, one of the streets at USC, and I, I stopped him. I said, Mr. Hausman, I, I just wanted to say that I I uh, really enjoy your work, and uh, and I'm uh, really pleased to meet you. And he said, Well, thank you very much. And then he turned around and walked away. So it was a very lovely, my lovely moment with John Hausman. I had been aware of John from Playhouse 90. Sure. Back. Martin Manulis produced it one, two, the first two, maybe three years. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And then when he left, uh, they didn't hire an a producer to take over. They hired three producers, Fred Cole, Herb Brodkin, and John Houseman. And each of them, they split the season up and each of them came in and would do a batch. I don't think, I don't think they did their, all of their batch at one time. I think they did some of it and then, and then came back. Right. So I'd known them then. And then, uh, in 1961, I was, uh, I was on staff of Playhouse 90, and John was uh, at Metro doing uh, All Fall Down. Mm. And I met him, bumped into him on the lot one day, and I had just read in the paper that he was going to do uh, a production at what became the theater group that moved to downtown L.A., but at that time they were based at uh, on the UCLA campus, and he was going to be doing a production of the Iceman Cometh. Right. And so when I bumped into him, I said, I congratulated him on it. And I said, I hope, I hope that you will enjoy doing it as much as I did when I did it. And he said, well, where did you do it? And I said, uh, in Gilmore Brown's Playbox. And he said, you did that production? I said, yes. And that was when he, he invited me and I came aboard. I had cut the four hour, the the four-hour play, we had to cut it down, and I had to cut an hour out of it. And wow. so I came aboard as his co-director, and he used and did some additional minor polishing, and so did that. And so then later when I, this would have been like 20-some years later, right. you know, by the time, yeah, from, 60, from 61 to the mid-'80s. Right. Uh, I came back and uh, so we, we were like old buddies. That's great. You know, you talked about the fact that actors change over the course of a, of a, of a show. And of course, the old axiom 
showrunners is the first season it's your show the second season it belongs to you and the actors and the third season it belongs to the actors so i have to ask you about that famous um situation and is there in truth no beauty where shatner and nimoy stop production so they can complain about the itic pin the uh the merchandise that uh gene uh, apparently wants to sell um is that a case of actors exerting their authority unnecessarily did they have a point? Uh, and, and, and I think they had a point. I think they had a point. The ambassador is most honored to meet you, Mr. Spark. Clear passageways. The ambassador will be escorted to his quarters at once. What is it he sees when he looks at you? I must know. What is it? Somebody nearby thinking of murder. saw the Medusa. Yes, he did. Then insanity will surely be the result, Captain. Why? Oh, yes, it is. You want him to die. Did you make him forget to put the visor over his eyes? You're insane. Captain. What? It's all right. Uh, what did you think of Fred Freiberger? Obviously, a very different producer you than don't Gene. Want to know. Hmm? You don't want to know. Oh. Well, now we know everything. <laughs> <laughs> not, 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 a, not a, not a fan. Obviously, as yeah. as, very, as few people are. Um, you know, it's no secret that that's considered uh, one of the the weakest season of that show, and most people would lay it at his uh, uh, doorstep. And I know, of course, you know. You, you got treated very unfairly on the Tholian web, um, you know, and uh, by, by Freiberger. And even in the case of um, this argument on set, he didn't want to deal with the stars. I mean, Gene had to come in and referee. So, um, and, and, and uh, you know, he did the same thing on Wild Wild West after you left and uh, on other shows where he came in to be, quote unquote, the fireman and, and didn't put out the fire, but lit the flames. Sprinkle a little gasoline on it. Only takes a little. Yeah, Ashley, you were saying? Oh no, I was just going to say. Um, so, just thinking about your career from the point of view of the actors that you worked with, right? I mean, you worked with just this incredible spectrum of experience and ability, from the kid on the courtship of Eddie's father, who's amazing, to John freaking Houseman, right? So. In there is just this this wide array of, of people who who come to the stage with just with different points of view on you know what their craft is, what their role in the show is, what their sense of their own power is, and somehow you always manage to get these amazing performances from everyone. So for you, like what was you know what is the what is the thing you would tell? You know, any director, especially moving into something that can be as technically difficult and trying from a just a, a schedule basis, from a technical basis, as directing television, what would you tell them about managing actors, about getting the best possible performance out of them, whether you're talking to a child who's just walking onto the set for the first time or John Houseman? Are you done? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> no. 
my, my thing is that uh, all actors work differently. They all have their own approach or different approaches to acting. And within the different approaches to acting, actors will have different approaches to their different approaches. And I just find that what I do is, but I, what I could do is go in and, and work with them in their approach rather than having everybody do it as in my approach. Right. And, and in directing actors, I, I, in the late 50s, Sandy Meisner from the right. Neighborhood Playhouse came out two summers and did a six-week seminar. And uh, one, of the, one of the summers, and it was at a time when we were in summer reruns, I was a production supervisor, and he had two three-hour classes a day, a three-hour class of noon to, to, know, to two or three, and then an evening class. And I went to every class of that time. And uh, I had had, had been in acting classes, Northwestern Playhouse, all the years that I did community theater. Uh, I just had, had developed a, a, an approach to acting with, that was capped with, with what Sandy taught. And that's just the way I worked. And they it, call, and it starts with the act. It starts with the actor because, right. as Sandy said, the actor basically is playing himself in the imaginary circumstances. Right. So you start with that. Now they call this the platinum age of TV. How do you compare having having been there at the dawn and and and, uh, and helped create the golden age of television? What do you think of TV today? How do you compare it, you know, to um, to, to the golden age? And, and, and what, are there any shows that you feel are special that you're watching today? I don't remember too much about the class except for one line that this white-haired Englishman said, great art is a sublimation of limitations. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I have said sometimes, Television was a sublimation of limitations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And they say art thrives on restrictions. And, and so much of TV at the time, there were so many restrictions, both in terms of content, but in terms of money and time and schedule. All, all we can do is, you know, be passionate. And if you, hopefully that shines through, you know, if you care about the work. So many people who don't, but if you do, it, it shines through. I mean... It's, uh, I, you know, I went back and was watching Paper Chase again and just, it just holds up. It just holds up. Yeah. I didn't watch Casablanca again, but I, I remember it fondly, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> surprised at how it holds up. Hmm? You'd be surprised at how it holds up if you yeah. it just as a show and not as a comparison. Right. right. Well, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of directors who are either really great with actors or really great technically. There are not as many who, who can combine both. And the thing about your, you is that you're not only great with the actors, but you're technically a, a, a wonderful director. And, and so you, there's a style to everything you do. And, there's all, and, and television, that's not easy, particularly on a six-day schedule. 
And then, you know, also the performances are, are, are great. I mean, I hate this to sound like, a, you know, we're just sitting, you know, uh, <laughs> complimenting you for an hour and a half, but it's, uh, I mean, it's true and it's obviously well-deserved. Well, again, let, let me say this. I mean, good actors and both, most of the ones that I work with who are better than good actors, they don't just, they don't come to the set ready. Well, now, what do you want me to do? They right. come ready. Yeah. And it, Give them an environment to work in, not to confine them, but to just bring them there and then let them bring what they what they they have planned, what they want to do, and then just let them do it. And it, and again, somebody was talking earlier about not there not being any rehearsals. I always rehearsed. Right. I always rehearsed, and that gave the actors a chance to get together and uh, sort it out. Hmm? Yeah, sort it out. Sort it out, yeah. But 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 the, they, they come ready. They, they do. They come ready. I mean, the, the greatest example of that was Pulo Bondi, mm. that, who did the two, the two Waltons, won an Emmy. Right. It was her last, her last appearance was, was in a Waltons. And Pula, I mean, she, she had everything worked out she she told me a story. She had a she had a small part in Olivia de Havilland's The Snake Pit. Mm -hmm. I think she's in two scenes, but one one major scene. And Beulah, you know, not all actors start on the first day. You you you're brought in for the the days when you're going to work. And by she came in later in the production, and by then in there were a lot of character ladies who had been playing inmates at the institution and uh, they had been working and she came in, they all warned her. They said, Beulah, prepare yourself. Anatole, Anatole Litvak. I, we don't know what, we don't know what's gotten into him. He's, he's just impossible. He's just, he cannot be pleased. He's just, he's just impossible. And Beulah said, well, you know, I've worked with Tolly and, uh, they said, wait, you'll see. So Beulah got into her makeup, got into her costume, came out on the set, was greeted by Tolly, and went over, did a quick run through, and I know the scene. Olivia to have, there's the camera, Olivia to Havlin's here, and Beulah is there. Beulah has all the lines. And, and, and she's playing a character. And he says, okay, we'll let's let, let's 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 shoot it so they shoot it she does it and he says cut let's do it again please and Beulah looks over at the other ladies they're all going okay, see <laughs> so they do it again cut let's do it again please five six times before he finally said cut print so she Beulah went up to him afterward and she said, Tolly, can I ask you something? And he said, of course, Beulah, what? She, she said, well, what was wrong with the, those other, the earlier performances? Because you didn't say. He said, there wasn't anything wrong, Beulah. I just like to watch you act. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's great. Oh, it's true. It's true. Well, 
Ralph, I, I have to thank you. This has really been remarkable. And, uh, you know, your career is just it, 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 stunning. Uh, and uh, I encourage anyone who wants to know more, you know, about the productions you've worked on, that go to your website, um, Ralph Cinematrek, where they can find out more. You're very candid in terms of your assessment of uh, the shows you worked on, the people you've worked with. Um, it's really a terrific resource. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today via Zoom uh, because, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really been, a, been a, a joy. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank okay, you. great. Well, uh, I'd like to thank Ralph, Ashley, uh, and of course, Darren, for once again joining us in Glorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of the show, don't forget to download Electric Now uh, at your favorite app store where you can watch episodes of uh, Inglorious Trexperts along with your other favorite video podcasts, including the 430 movie. And we'll be back next Saturday with an all new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Until then, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.